The Scapegoat is a briefer and less ambitious book than the two that preceded it, Violence and the Sacred and Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, which we will come to next week. It, in many ways, is an elaboration and extension of the arguments Girard first developed in those two works, rather than a completely standalone, groundbreaking text in the way that the other two were. So it's not necessarily as high profile as either those other texts or as widely read. But nevertheless, I think it deserves our attention, in part because it's characterized by a series of close readings of texts that exemplify Girard's approach to analysis and textual close reading, which also shows us a great deal about how he works with evidence and what type of evidence he uses to support the hypotheses that he developed first in the previous two works, which I mentioned. So it is also a extremely succinct and clear synopsis of Girard's understanding of myth and how he sees myth in relation to more modern genres, as well as the gospel text, which we will also come to next week. But I'd like to focus here on the particular way that Girard approaches myth in this book, and the methodology that he brings to his analyses of various myths from different parts of the world, including ancient Greece, but also Scandinavia and pre-Columbian Mexico. So, this book again again, is important because it exemplifies something crucial about Girard's use of evidence, which I should also say is both what makes him a a unique thinker in the history of ideas, is that he has a particular understanding of how textual narratives evolved and makes broad claims about the nature of human society and its evolution based on textual analysis. And so this is a, an approach that has been controversial, in part because the, the disciplines that are more typically involved in making such claims, such as anthropology and sociology, Um, tend to use different kinds of evidence to develop their arguments. So they tend to, instead of simply analyzing texts, they engage in fieldwork and perhaps uh, statistical analysis, particularly in the case of sociology. And in the case of anthropology also, you have physical anthropology, which is essentially the, the use of ancient human remains and archaeological remnants to make sense of earlier societies. So Girard is engaged in a kind of archaeology of humanity, but his path towards his un- the understanding of humanity and its 
evolution and history that he offers passes through texts. And this is why, even though he goes far afield at many points from the field of literary studies in which he publishes his initial work, as we saw with Deceit, Desire, in the novel, he nevertheless remains linked to literary scholarship in the sense that he is somebody who fundamentally bases his work on close readings of texts. So this is, I think, an important thing because it essentially is how his theory stands or falls. In other words, if we if we find both the way that he goes about working with texts, but also the claims he makes for what we can learn from texts, if we if we accept those or if we take them seriously, then I think we will find a great deal that's fruitful and and quite illuminating about his ideas. Whereas if we have a methodological objection to this approach, then that's probably going to correlate with a larger skepticism about his project. So indeed, he was often criticized by anthropologists who unsurprisingly were not that happy that he, despite being by profession, supposedly a scholar of French literature, was sort of treading on their territory. Um, So the criticism he often received from them was that he was essentially an armchair anthropologist. That is to say, he did not go out in the field and do fieldwork and observe societies directly. Instead, he relied on textual representations. Now, he did use ethnographies from other anthropologists, and we see some examples of this, such as his discussion of the ethnographer E. E. Evans Pritchard. But he, again, did not carry out fieldwork of his own, and so for some anthropologists, that was a, a flaw of his methodology, which made them generally skeptical of his claims. However, Girard has a, an argument for what the importance of texts is, and that is that texts are a part of a process, a part of a social process that he's, in the pro- that he's attempting to elucidate. And so the reason the texts can teach us things about the evolution of humanity is because they are, they are documents or records of a social process that humanity has undergone over and over again in different forms throughout its history. And so obviously the, the original texts of this sort might have been oral prior to there being written cultures, but eventually they were written down in societies like ancient Israel and ancient Greece. And at that point, um, they, they again became sort of permanent records of the social processes that he's trying to make sense of. And they were also part of that process, right? They also formed part of the process that they, that they were representing. So this is why they, they constitute evidence, he would argue. And it's important to note that for him... This is a historical process because humanity undergoes an evolution. And as we'll see here, it's essentially an evolution away from myth and towards something else. What is that something else? Well, we will get into that momentarily. So, 
What are the texts that Gerard is discussing primarily in this section of the scapegoat? Well, essentially, he is um, distinguishing between what he calls a historical persecution text or text of persecution and a myth. So what is a historical persecution text? Well, it is a text from usually earlier periods of history, such as the Middle Ages or early modern period, in which there is a record of some actual persecution of some scapegoat or minority that took place, and in which that persecution is, at least to some extent, justified or rationalized. So the example he gives is from a medieval poem in which... uh, a wave of anti-Semitic persecutions, that is to say, persecutions of Jews, um, as were periodically typical in the Middle Ages, particularly in moments of crisis like the plague, that this is a text that um, includes uh, a record of of such an event. Now, part of his... uh, Part of his rhetorical strategy with this analysis is to make the following point. So, just for a little bit of background, he's writing at a time when a literary text is generally treated by literary scholars as non-referential, that is to say, as completely self-contained, and referring only to imaginary things rather than to any real events in the world. And so the general strategy of approaching literature, which had prevailed in at least U.S. academia where Girard was working, although he was still writing in French, the, the primary mode of analysis simply bracketed any relationship to a historical or biographical referent, in other words, to any, any real-life thing that the text referred to, and instead focused on analyzing the text as a self-contained artifact. So, Girard uh, dissents from this approach quite explicitly, and he gives a very clear reason why in this uh, section about this uh, French poem by Guillaume de Machaut from the Middle Ages. And the reason he gives is that there is a description within this text of a series of persecutions of Jews who are accused of spreading plague and poisoning the wells and things like that. And so what he suggests is, first of all, the accusations that are made in the text are obviously to modern readers outlandish, right? We, we don't believe that the... Uh, French Jews of this period actually did the things that were that they were accused of, right? We we automatically um, discredit or discount that idea. But at the same time, we accept that at least the events of uh, reprisal, in other words, the attacks that were carried out by uh, French Christians against Jews were real. We accept that at least something like this did really happen, and that when Machaud describes this this phenomenon, 
he is describing something real, right? And if we claimed that this part of the text is not referential, we would essentially be putting ourselves in the position of some being something like uh, Holocaust deniers, right? So we would be denying the reality of a, a, a type of event that we, we simply know and accept happened in this period. So Girard is sort of suggesting there's a, there's a danger to this approach to literature as a self-contained object, which is that literature may refer to historical events that we, for moral or ethical reasons, do not want to deny because these were events that had real victims, right? Because these were events that actually had a death toll that killed people. And so if we if we say about a text like this that it's entirely self-referential or self-contained then we're we're denying a, an ethically significant reality right and so a historical persecution text would simply be a text that points to some sort of historical event in which someone or some group of people were persecuted so the examples he gives are essentially anti-Semitic persecutions and witch hunts. And so what he notes about this is that all of these types of texts are fi filled with outlandish accusations, including consorting with the devil and carrying out all sorts of magical practices and, um, you know, spells and mass poisonings and things that seem or, you know, um, being able to spread a plague across an entire population. So things that seem simply unrealistic to us, right? And that we, we, again, when we encounter them, can just discount. We can say, we know that this did not happen. It's obviously just being made up, right? But at the same time, we accept the reality of the victim. That is to say, we, re we accept the reality that Jews were in fact killed by persecutors in the Middle Ages. We accept the fact that witches were burned at the stake, and so on, right? So we, when we're assessing these texts, we have a sort of mixed approach. And he's saying that this is sort of an intuitive approach that any modern reader would bring to the text, right? That we, we bring to it this blend of realism, in other words, of taking it as a, a text that refers us to some reality that actually occurred, and at the same time, a sort of non-realism, where we're, we accept that a great deal of what is in the text is pure confabulation or product of the imagination. So he, he argues, and this is important, this is not his approach, he is simply observing this is the way that modern people look at these texts, right? When they look at the record of a witch trial or an account from one of the persecutors or from someone sympathetic to them of an anti-Semitic persecution in the Middle Ages, we accept that the victims were real, that they were in fact persecuted, that they were in fact killed, but we do not accept the reality of the persecutors' claims about their crimes, right? We, we think that it is untrue that they did these things. Um, so this type of text is kind of a weird blend because it, 
offers some evidence that we can take as a realistic um, record of historical events, but it also mixes in with that a great deal of obvious, absurd confabulation and exaggeration and so on. So this is a, a historical persecution text, right? So it's a text that, um, on one hand, points us to some historical reality, on the other hand, um, and, and discloses the basic nature of that reality, right? That, that there was a persecution happening. But on the other hand, attempts to justify that persecution through all of these elaborate and outlandish accusations. And so his claim is that any modern reader will recognize this type of text almost intuitively and know how to read it. And so this is true of the text he example he brings, which is Guillaume de Machaut, but it would be also true of any record of witch trials or things like that. So the question is, how did we get from point A to point B? How did we get from potentially being the type of reader imagined by the authors of these texts who would read them and find them convincing as accusations or as, as testimony against the individuals who were persecuted, and being people who, when confronted with a text like this, automatically side with the victim and see the victim's innocence shining through all of these bizarre, elaborate persecutions, right? And we know that this actually happened relatively recently in history because if you're familiar with, in the U.S. context, the Salem Witch Trials, what's interesting there is not so much that they happened, which, you know, the, the same types of events happened all across Europe and, in fact, continue to happen in some parts of the world today, right? These types of persecutions of witches or of people accused of, of, of black magic or sorcery are extremely common, happen in many different cultures that otherwise have little in common with each other, and indeed, still happen today. You can find examples of accusations very much like the Salem Witch Trials happening today in places like South Africa. So, what happened with the Salem Witch Trials? What, what's remarkable is not that they happened, but that they, became, they quickly became so scandalous. So, if you're familiar with the book The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was a descendant of one of the Puritan judges involved in the real Salem witch trial case. He writes this sort of foreword to the Scarlet Letter, in which, among other things, he reveals his kind of embarrassment and disgust at this thing that his ancestors did, right? And so he's writing maybe 150, 200 years after the events. So this transformation, right, where you had not sort of uneducated rabble claiming that these witches did these things, but the most educated people in the land, right? The most educated elites in New England at the time accepted the, the truth of these accusations. Um, Cotton Mather, right, who is one of the most erudite people in colonial America, um, wrote a book essentially supporting the idea that witchcraft was real, that these occult practices were real, and that you know it was necessary to crack down on them and so on. So 
how did we get from a situation in which these sorts of things were accepted and not just by average, you know, common people, but by the most educated people in the land to a situation in which they were essentially regarded as embarrassing and repugnant. So this happened really over the course of a few hundred years, right? And we are at the end of that process, and this is why we can look at texts like Guillaume de Machos and find them, again, um, truthful insofar as they reveal that there were these victims of a persecution, but completely deceptive in that the accusations they make are ones that we intuitively regard as ludicrous, right? So again, the question is, how do we know how to determine what is real in these texts and what isn't? How do we get to the point historically where we can look back at these texts and know there are real victims and the accusations are fictional? How do we, how do we get there? That's the fundamental question that this, um, that this analysis begins with and sets out to answer. So this, importantly, is also something that Girard argues. This type of text, this historical persecution text, is one that he argues occupies a kind of intermediary stage in history between myth and a sort of modern-day um, secular scientific sensibility. So in other words, it's... It's a, and this is part of why these texts sort of can often alarm us, right? They will, they will claim to be doing very modern things like presenting rigorous judicial evidence, presenting even scientific evidence. They'd have testimony from the great learned experts. So they, they present themselves in, very, um, in, in ways that we would be familiar with, right, from modern day courtrooms. And yet, on the other hand, we find them repulsive, right? We find them morally um, uh, completely disagreeable. And so there's something that we recognize here, and yet there's also something that we find very strange, right? So again, these texts are intermediary. And for Girard, what we need to understand in order to understand the intermediary position of these texts is the real nature of myth, right? Which is generally understood as the most standard, common form of narrative in particularly pre-literate societies. So it takes primarily the form of oral traditions that are passed down among pre-literate and pre-modern societies. And this is the prevalent type of narrative that exists all around the world, regardless of the culture, right? And then we have these kinds of intermediary Stages where we have a literate culture like ancient Greece, which incorporates the myths, but also begins to um, be skeptical of them, right? And of course, when you get to the point of someone like Socrates, as recounted in the work of Plato, he's essentially saying, maybe we need to start doing away with these myths because they're, they're full of all this made-up nonsense and... They, you know, when children are taught these things, they're given a sort of wildly unrealistic sense of reality and so on. So there is a kind of debunking process that we can see that seems to happen with, in literate cultures, right? That, that 
um, the rise of literacy seems to coincide with the gradual questioning of myth. So that's a whole other subject that we could get into, um, but Girard is not, not so much concerned with literacy per se, although it is kind of an interesting point in the background here, right? Which is that myth of the sort that he's dealing with in its original form comes from pre-literate cultures and is now transcribed to us um, in sort of later versions that were preserved in some form or another. But basically, um, he, he doesn't get into this so much, but it is interesting to note that the evolution from myth to a kind of anti-mythic scientific point of view is also an evolution that's shaped by the rise of literacy. So, how do we read myths? Well, he argues that the way that most people approach myths today is, is wrong, in a sense. Um, and here are the basic mistakes that he, that he thinks we find in, in the standard reading of myth, whether it's just the kind of average person's enjoyment of, you know, these compilations of myths, whether Greek or Scandinavian or from other cultures, um, that basically um, the typical way that we read myths in modern times is that we read them as not having any kind of reference, returning to this idea of, of reference, right? So we read them as not really being about any real people right? That just seems obvious, right? These myths are, they're fantastical. They're about, you know, gods and heroes and so on. Surely these people can't have really existed, right? Um, second, we tend to read them as symbolic or perhaps poetic. In other words, as either their meanings are, instead of being referential, instead of referring to real events that happened in history, they are, um, th their meaning is, is embodied in their symbolism and in, in what they symbolize, right? So for example, um, you know, take the idea of like the myth of Persephone, right? Well, you know, she's taken down to Hades for half the year and that's when winter comes, right? So she, um, so the myth sort of symbolizes the passing or the, the cyclical passing of the seasons, right? So that's one typical way of reading them. They don't, they don't refer to real events involving real people. They're, they're a sort of um, personification or, or symbolic expression of some, um, some natural process, right? Or perhaps of some deep inner, inner human attributes, right? So, you know, a god or a hero might embody some particular human quality like bravery or um, trickery or something like that. Um, so, and, and then they might just be read as poetic, right? They might be read as their meaning fundamentally residing just in their, their pure kind of decorative or ornamental beauty, right? And um, finally, we read them as expressions of the particular sensibility or cultural values of the, the culture or group from which they came. So, okay, so these are essentially the standard approaches to myth that Girard sets out to, to debunk, right, and to oppose in this, um, in this discussion. And basically, he, um, he, ha he finds the, the following problems with it. Right. Um, first of all, they 
these these myths actually resemble, even though they they're obviously not referential in any simple sense, they do re, they do resemble real things that have happened, right, and that we can observe. And so this is the comparison he makes between these historical texts of persecution, right, which basically. Um, he, he embodies in the, in the example of Oedipus, right? And, sorry, he embodies myth as, um, in the example of Oedipus, right? And he suggests that there are actually quite a few similarities to historical texts of persecution, right? So think about Oedipus, who we've, we've talked about before, right? So Oedipus is, um, uh, a cripple, right? Is he has this discussion of, you know, handicap or disability, as a sort of marker of if if you go through actual records of persecution, right, you find examples of you know people who are persecuted because they have some um, what we would call today disability, right, and this this somehow marks them as as uh, cursed or as um, it it sets them apart from the society, right, and so it it makes them. Um, sca- a scapegoat, right? Because it 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 sets them apart. It makes them stand out, right? And so they have this, as he says, polarizing power, right? That, that they can sort of array the society around them. Now, I brought up an example of this in my discussion with Justin um, uh, in the uh, my appearance on his podcast, which is if you know the show Downton Abbey. There's this character who's the butler, right, and who uh, Mr. Bates, right, and what's his deal? Well, he's crippled, right, and basically all of the other servants have it in for him, right? They systematically gang up together to persecute him, right? And so this is really just a, a simple illustration of this principle, right? He He stands out among the servants and... He um, therefore kind of attracts excessive attention from them, and that attention turns violent and persecutory. Okay, so basically, Gerard's point is that you know there are all these figures in um, in historical persecution texts which we accept as having real references, where characters either because they're foreigners, like the Jews are understood to be or because they're particularly ugly or deformed or disabled in some way, they're, they're marked as outsiders and um, persecuted um, partly on that basis, it would seem. So, as he points out, you know, if you, if you sort of bring the Oedipus myth down to earth and you retell it as a kind of medieval folktale, right? You imagine a crippled man who's... Uh, who's a foreigner, right, who's come from somewhere else and has managed to amass power and is accused of various dirty dealings like killing the this wealthy, powerful woman's husband in order to marry her and then is also accused of incest. You know, these are, um, these are the kinds of things that in a, a text of persecution, right, you can imagine would be said about the person in order to justify their persecution or burning at the stake, right? So this is what he calls the stereotypes of persecution, which you can find in all of these texts, which again, we accept to have real 
reference. And yet they, they have this common thread of kind of confabulation where they accuse the persecuted person of all sorts of things. And these are the stereotypes of persecution, right? So what he shows is that these are present in myths like Oedipus as well, and not just in um, these texts of persecution. There's a continuity there, right? So myth seems to be part of a kind of lineage with these later, closer to modern texts of persecution, right? And um, at the same time, I think his... His objection to how we read myth is that we accept that there it has all these kind of elaborate distortions of reality, right? Where it, it imagines things that are impossible or um, that that don't don't make sort of realistic sense. But it doesn't really explain why people. It doesn't explain the genesis of this um, this kind of mythification, right? How does you know if uh, what is it that that occasions people to um elaborate these kinds of stories um, that are that are far-fetched and unrealistic and so on. Well, he argues that texts of persecution give us one possible reason why, which is that in the process of attempting to justify or explain the attribution of some misfortune to the victim, right, to the scapegoat, we may um, elaborate all of these strange accusations against them, right? And so basically, you know, this, if, if we accept this, then it gives us a principle by which we can explain the sort of mythical elaboration of, of these kinds of fictional attributes and fantastical or, um, you know, exaggerated um, epithets and claims about these individuals who appear in myth, right? Um, so... So these are just a few reasons why he thinks we that there is a good a good reason to make this association between myths and texts of persecution. Um, but there are a few reasons why we don't um, why we don't tend to read myths this way, right? One is simply that there's a kind of cover up, right, with all of these sorts of texts. In the case of the um, of the texts of persecution, as we discussed, this takes the form of, or can take the form of a kind of elaborate justification, sort of edifice of justifications, which we might recognize as almost proto, um, you know, scientific or based on a kind of criminal justice process, you know, due process even, right? That these witches are actually brought to trial and have all sorts of witnesses arrayed against them and so on. So, so there's a, there is a kind of cover-up, but um, there's a sort of um, an attempt to be as, as realistic as possible. Whereas for Girard, um, with myth, there's, the cover-up is far more systematic and complete and completely fantastical and fictionalized, right? It doesn't, um, it doesn't take this kind of... Again, because myths are farther away from our sensibility than these historical texts of persecution. They don't involve these kinds of quasi-scientific or quasi-juridical techniques of justification. They just involve a kind of elaborate fictionalization and cover-up that takes the form of that, right? Um, second of all, you know, whereas in these texts of persecution you have this attempt to prove the 
the um, reality of the accusations, right? In myths, the accusations are simply asserted as as plain fact, right? So we, you know, when we read the Oedipus myth, Oedipus killed his mother, killed his father, married his mother, um, brought plague to the land. Like these are all just straightforward facts, right? So this is quite different from, you know, the persecution of a witch who might also be accused of committing incest and might also be accused of bringing plague or disease in the 16th century. But um, those those accusations in a witch trial would have to at least be established in some form, right? It would ha- it would have to be imagined that you might not accept them, and therefore you would need to present evidence, right? And th- this again is what's strange about these witch trials, right? That that they're based on these claims that we find fantastical today. Yet there was this attempt to be rigorous, right, in presenting um, a case for the reality of these claims. So that suggests there's already with the text of persecution, a kind of bad conscience or sense of, um, uncertainty, right. That needs to be resolved. So the, the, um, so basically the, the myths don't try to prove anything. They simply assert it, right. Um, they're, they're completely consumed by a conviction of the guilt of the, the victim. Right. And then this, you know, relates to another point, which is, which is crucial here, right? Which is that there's a kind of degradation of this process, which is the process that I discussed in relation to violence and the sacred, right? Which is the process by which the sacred is generated, right? So how is the sacred generated? The sacred is generated through the process of persecution, which is to say of scapegoating or of surrogate victimage, in which the community in conflict reconciles itself by identifying a surrogate victim through whom it can discharge its internal conflicts and push them to the outside, right? So Girard's claim is that through this process, a kind of transcendence and um, uh, the supernatural, we might say, is generated, right? Because it brings about this immense relief and sort of transformation from or metamorphosis from war to peace, from division to unity, and so on, right? And so it's through this experience of radical metamorphosis that the surrogate victimage brings about that the sacred, the experience of the sacred is generated, right? And this is why the victim, having once been expelled, can become a god, right? The victim who previously brought plague upon the land becomes the land's greatest benefactor, right? And, you know, he brings up... um, a simple example of this, which is the god Apollo in, in Greek myth, right? So who's the god Apollo? Well, he's the god of sunlight. He's the god that brings everything that is, you know, good and beautiful. Yet at the same time, he's also the god who dispenses plague, right, and pestilence. So that kind of dual function of seeming op- and fusion of seeming opposites, Girard associates with this basic um, metamorphosis, right? Where the the victim is accused of all of these, of having brought plague or um, of of having brought about the conflict, which might be figured in the form of a plague that, that has nearly destroyed the society. But then through their expulsion, they 
bring about the transformation that restores the society. Hence the, the, the um, subsequent deification of this victim includes both the attributes of... The, uh, it, it, it contains some trace of their, their negative attributes, right? Of their, their identity as a bringer of plague, but at the same time also carries this sense of their salvific function, right? Their, their function as the savior of the land, of the restorer of peace and prosperity and so on. So in other words, in myths, the victim who's persecuted through this process becomes sacred, right? And through that process becomes a god or a demigod or a hero or something of that sort, right? And the the degradation of the, the mythical narrative that we see in texts of persecution is illustrated in the simple fact, as he points out, that in texts of persecution, the we only see the first half of this process, right? We see the the vituperation against the the victim, right? The accusation of the victim being the cause of all sorts of misfortune, but we do not see their subsequent transformation into a deity. So it's a kind of half-completed process, right? They might bring about a kind of temporary relief, but the the functioning of this process has been weakened, right? It's It's somehow been made less effective, as demonstrated by the fact that these witches or Jews do not become gods. Now, there is a slight caveat to that, which is that there are these... Um, ways, as he points out, that, you know, witches and and also Jews, specifically in the form of Jewish doctors in the Middle Ages, in good times can be seen as healers, right, can be seen as, um, as having this kind of beneficial medicinal function for the society, right? But in bad times, this can become precisely what they're persecuted for because the idea is that they hold the health of the society in their hand their their incredible power to heal shows that if you if you somehow get on their bad side or if they're you know feeling capricious or have been given over to evil then they can use those same powers to destroy right and this is really again you know he compares this to apollo right this is apollo apollo is the patron of medicine but at the same time of plague right and so he compares this to a real historical figure, the Jewish doctor of, of Queen Elizabeth I in England, right, who's regarded as the great sort of medical practitioner of his time. His services are coveted, but then eventually he becomes a kind of scapegoat for some sort of internal conflict and is accused of poisoning and, and bringing about pestilence and therefore is, is publicly executed in a, in a horrible way, right? So... There is this weird duality, right, where where this benefactor can become a maleficent figure, but at the same time, there's no um, transformation or apotheosis into a god, right, which would mark the completion of this this process by which the sacred is generated, right. So the sacred has already been degraded or eroded in some way, or the capacity to generate the sacred through this process has been degraded or eroded. Now, I think there's some complications to this, which I hope we can get into in discussions, because, you know, I, I think it's it's also worth paying attention to 
the ways in which the sacred still can be generated. And the example I gave in my previous lecture on violence and the sacred was how does George Floyd go from being an average person to be becoming a kind of saint, right? And who, who's actually, you know, who has sort of shrines dedicated to him and is, um, is actually sometimes depicted as a saint with a halo and so on. So how does this happen? Well, there's some kind of version of this process of the genesis of the sacred going on there. And it would be interesting to think further as we go ahead about what that, what that looks like and how it happens in our technological mediatized age and whether perhaps it's, it's, you know, uh, uh, a function of, of the media itself, which would suggest a relationship between myth making as it's, occurring in oral cultures of the sort Girard is discussing and the kind of, um, the kind of oral distributed sort of folk culture that's enabled by the fusion of media and social media. But that's, that's just something to think about. Um, but the point is that through narrative, through storytelling, through the genesis of these texts, there is a genesis of the sacred, but that in the case of the, persecution text, that process has been somehow eroded and degraded, and we will definitely be getting into why Girard thinks that happens. So, but, I mean, I'll give my brief version here, right, which is that there is a discovery of the scapegoat, as Girard describes it, which enables this evolution and degradation from myth to persecution text, and later on to a situation where even persecution texts are regarded as absurd and disgraceful, right? And so and we can accept myths, right, today as sort of charming and poetic, Girard argues, but only if we only if we accept their mystification of the real persecutions that they have their roots in, right? So so myths are are seem nice and um, you know, even when they're kind of weird and grotesque there those are just kind of you know written off as as weird um illustrations of the the strange cultural sensibility of this group in the past or perhaps as um just kind of decorative or or you know bizarre but the point is that uh we we accept myth without being scandalized by it because we don't see it as having any referential element, right? Because we don't see it as having, in the way these persecution texts do, a relationship to real events in which victims were persecuted, okay? Because when we do find texts that seem to make reference to real events in which victims are persecuted, we, we, we flip into that way of reading that I, that I mentioned before, right? Where we, we recognize the reality of the victim, but we instinctively and intuitively discount the reality of the accusations against them, right? And so this is the discovery of the scapegoat. So what this would mean is that basically people who scapegoat do not um, talk about scapegoating, right? They do it, but it's not something they recognize. So a term that, a phrase from the Bible that Gerard we'll refer to later is they know not what they do, right? This is what 
Jesus says about his persecutors, right? Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. So in order for scapegoating to work, there has to be a, a misrecognition or inability to recognize what it is that is being done. So this is what is sometimes called a méconnaissance, a misrecognition, right? They, they must believe that whereas we um, intuitively and instinctively believe that, you know, when somebody is accused of being a witch and consorting with the devil and, um, you know, uh, sacrificing babies or whatever, um, we intuitively, although there are exceptions to this, tend to find this absurd, right? And we reject it. Whereas in order to be a good scapegoater, you have to actually believe that the victim is guilty of the things you accuse them of. Now, in these older texts, those tend to be sensational things, right? But I think we can find plenty of modern examples, which I'll get to in just a minute at the end. Um, so basically, um, the discovery of the scapegoat would mean that we arrive at a situation historically where we can no longer naively believe in the reality of the accusations that enable scapegoating. So this literally means that we start to talk about something called scapegoating, right? So as soon as we say someone is scapegoating someone or refer to scapegoating as a phenomenon, that means we've seen through it, right? In other words, to scapegoat someone is to persecute them even though they are innocent, right? And to make them the victim um, in a sort of strategic way so as to deflect blame from others or as so as to, um, you know, find a convenient outlet for um, bigger problems, right? So, so when we talk about scapegoating, we, we're sort of embodying our, again, this kind of common, intuitive, instinctive knowledge that we all seem to have that there is this phenomenon in the world, right, of, of collective persecution of innocent victims, right? And for Girard, this is something that comes about historically, and that comes about historically for specific reasons and in a specific way, which we will get into more next week. For now, I will simply say that there's a process of which these persecution texts mark sort of the midpoint, by which the possibility of generating the sacred through scapegoating becomes harder and harder to do or to sustain. Although, again, I think there are caveats to this. Um, but it, I think the basic idea would be, and we'll get into this more later, we still do this, right? This process still occurs, but it is difficult to maintain a good conscience about it. And it's difficult to, um, and, and it is impossible to truly generate the sacred um, in the way that ancient societies were able to do. Okay, so we generate something like an ersatz version of the sacred, but not the sacred in the, in the precise sense of pre-modern societies. So this, this is the argument, right? So, and Girard says, Girard summarizes this as follows. Collective violence is still creating myths in our universe, but for reasons we shall learn more about, is functioning less and less well. 
So this is, I think, uh, a good sentence to keep in mind. Um, what does it mean that it's functioning less and less well? So we, we are still creating myths, right? So the example I would turn to here is just think about, um, you know, think about the most egregious example of someone being canceled or harassed on the internet, right? Well, what tends to happen is that they're accused of all sorts of horrible things. And then often it will turn out that the things they're accused of are, um, you know, that, that these accusations are exaggerated, right? That there may be something to them, but that they are highly exaggerated, right? And then the, um, the debate becomes about the justice of those accusations, right? The example I think of here is the um, Covington Catholic high school kids, and particularly this kid, Nick Sandman, right, who based on a single picture was accused of disrespecting a Native American elder, right, simply by the expression he made on his face. And there was kind of this bizarre collective persecution, which, you know, as I said, was true of the Salem Witch Trials, involved many of the most uh, prestigious and highly educated people in the land, the the Twitter blue checks, um, right, who all kind of chimed in on the idea that he not only was, you know, a, a detestable human being, but that he essentially deserved any violence that might, that might come to him, right? That he deserved to be attacked, beaten, punched in the face, whatever. So then there was this kind of weird evolution as often happens because other videos and images were shown, which revealed that the whole situation was more nuanced, right? And then basically the the persecutors, right, the people who participated in the mobbing of this kid, basically they couldn't let go and they still to this day can't really let go of their claim that he was guilty, right? But that's by no means unanimous, right? It, it hasn't um, it hasn't been become sort of the accepted wisdom. Instead, there's a kind of fragmented world in which some people believe it and others don't, right? And that means that's part of why there's a, an inefficacy of the sacred being generated because it ends up being divided on partisan lines and being quite fragmented as to who believes what, right? So that this is an example of, as Gerard said, the, this kind of function happening, but it's functioning less and less well, right? So, um, just to conclude, I want to tie back to the first lecture on uh, Deceit, Desire, in the novel, because I think there is an interesting evolution and sort of through line that's worth pointing out here in terms of Girard's approach to textual analysis. So, in Deceit, Desire, in the novel, as we saw, he distinguishes between romantic lie and novelistic truth. So, there are texts that um, there are texts that lie to us, right, that deceive us or mislead us. And then there are texts that can point us to some truth, right, and that can unveil or uncover that truth in a way that nothing else can, right? And so Girard thinks this is true, still thinks, still brings this basic sensibility, right, to his analysis of texts, but um, now it is not the romantic lie that he's focused on, but we might say the mythic lie. So what is the mythic lie? The mythic lie is the lie of essentially the guilt of the victim, but also of the victim's sacred status, right? 
So it's this two-sided lie, which on one hand attributes all of these ills and harms to this um, persecuted victim, but on the other hand, it is the um, it is the uh, the deification or sacralization of the victim, right? That these are the two sides of the mythic lie, right? And the truth is one that, as we will see next week, he argues is first disclosed in the biblical texts, which he reads as a kind of anti-myth, right? As a, as a series of texts that deconstruct myth and that show the functioning of the mechanism by which the sacred is produced through collective persecution. And that by showing it, they disrupt this méconnaissance, this... Um, misrecognition, this not knowing what they're doing, right? By showing us what we're doing when we do this. So this, to put it simply, is why while in the medieval period, of course, the Christian era, which, you know, an obvious objection here would be, okay, but Christians did not stop persecuting people despite this supposed revelation. And this is indeed a complicated um, critique that can be made, and you know Gerard does does attempt to respond to it, but he sees this as a slow unveiling, right? That that there's a there's a, a very slow process because this tendency to scapegoat and also to to sacralize the scapegoat scapegoated victim is so deep rooted, right? And is so fundamental, right? It's in the foundations of the world, right? It simply um, takes quite a bit of historical time to work itself out, right? So that's essentially the claim. And so this is why, again, there's a historical argument being made here, that if we look at these texts of persecution, we can see a stage of this process by which myth is being debunked, right? And so on one hand, you have this attempt, this kind of desperate attempt, right, which I would compare to the attempts of people to continue to claim that, you know, the original simple version of the Covington Catholic story was was the true one, right? Um, and you can, you know, for any sort of major harassment or mobbing online case, you can find people who will still hold to the original story, right, of the guilt of the victim and who will insist on that. Right. So similarly, we have these persecutors in the Middle Ages who are going to tremendous lengths. Right. They're um, going through these entire elaborate trials. They're bringing evidence to bear and so on. Right. And so they're going to tremendous lengths just to maintain this lie, the mythic lie of the guilt of the victim. But they're the links that they're going to, Gerard argues, are sort of revealing to us their bad conscience, right? The fact that they're they're not quite capable of believing it anymore. So how did they get to the point? How did what brought them to this point where they're not quite capable of believing it anymore? Well, this will be the subject of next week's lectures, which will concern the account that Gerard offers of the Bible and particularly of Christianity as the the factor that disrupts the functioning of myth and gradual sets about this or sets sets off this gradual process uh, 
of revelation and as we'll see later of of apocalypse right by which this foundational dimension of human societies becomes less and less able to function effectively so I will leave it there. Thank you. And I look forward to discussing this with you.